Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 16th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The Fulton County Grand Jury begins hearing Trump's case. Javier Milei wins Argentina's presidential primaries. Taiwan's vice president stops in the U.S. Several Hong Kong protesters have their convictions partially quashed. The slain candidate's vice president is picked to run for Ecuadorian presidency. Hunter Biden's lawyers say the U.S. prosecutors reneged on a plea deal. Kim Jong-un calls for a drastic boost in weapons production. Mexico says it will pay the families of migrants killed in a detention center fire $8 million. Miss Universe cuts ties with Indonesia. And scientists turn fly carcasses into biodegradable plastic. In our first story, the Fulton County Grand Jury begins hearing Trump's case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, ABC News, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, NBC, Reuters, and The Guardian. Proceedings in the Fulton County, Georgia, grand jury hearings against former President Trump appear to be happening faster than anticipated after two witnesses slated to present Tuesday testified on Monday, while County District Attorney and elected Democrat Fannie Willis began her presentation. Willis is expected to announce her charges against Trump for his alleged attempts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Fulton County's courthouse has been closed with barriers put around it in anticipation of Willis's announcement. Former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and journalist George Cheedy were supposed to testify before the grand jury Tuesday, but are now expected to appear Monday. Former State Representative B. Nguyen and other state Democrats also testified against the former president on Monday. Trump asserted that Duncan should not testify before the jury. He also voiced his criticism of Willis, calling her a phony, engaged in a political witch hunt. Earlier in the day, the Fulton County Court website briefly posted a docket of several criminal charges against Trump. The document, dated August 14th, was taken down without explanation, and the case named Trump was listed as open. The removed two-page document included charges of racketeering, conspiracy, and false statements. The prosecution's two presentation will continue Tuesday, and in Georgia, it's typical for prosecutors to ask a grand jury to return indictments the same day. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have our narrative spin, starting with the Democratic narrative from The Guardian. Fannie Willis has worked her entire career to prepare for this moment, and she's ready to take down Donald Trump for his efforts to destroy democracy in Georgia as well as the entire country. Willis has a sprawling case against Trump with ample evidence to show his elaborate scheme to find 11,780 votes needed to win Georgia and defy the will of the people. Willis is concerned with justice and justice only, which she will pursue as she takes down Trump for his attempted coup. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from the post-millennial. As if all the politically motivated indictments against Trump weren't enough proof of crooked prosecutors trying to jail their enemy, the leaked list of charges against Trump shows yet again that there's no justice in our so-called justice system. How can a district attorney post an indictment before a grand jury has even heard its entire presentation? All of this has been cooked up from the jump, and the American people see how hard the system is fighting against Trump. However, it will only make him more popular. Just watch the polls. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 35% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated by the year 2030. 
and political shockwaves in Argentina as Javier Milei wins the presidential primary. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Buenos Aires Times, the Buenos Aires Herald, Bloomberg, the Associated Press, and Reuters. Freedom Advocates leader and libertarian lawmaker Javier Milei delivered a blow to Argentina's political establishment on Sunday when he emerged as the most popular candidate in a key primary vote ahead of the October 2022 presidential election. With 97% of the ballot counted as of Monday morning, Milei held a lead just short of two points over the combined vote of the Together for Change opposition bloc and a lead of more than two points over the ruling left-wing Unity for the Homeland Alliance. These Argentinian votes will determine which candidates can compete in general elections, as only political groups that have reached a threshold of 1.5% of the weekend's nationwide primary ballots will be qualified to run. Economy Minister Sergio Massa has been confirmed as the ruling coalition candidate, while former Security Minister Patricia Bullrich defeated Buenos Aires City Mayor Horatio Rodriguez Loretta to win the Together for Change nomination. The Open, Simultaneous, and Mandatory Primary Elections, or PASO system, was created in 2009 to allow citizens to choose their preferred candidates within the same political coalition. However, only seven out of the 15 contending groups have put forward more than one presidential hopeful this year. Participation in the primaries is mandatory for most adults, and each person gets one vote, making it a de facto nationwide opinion poll two months before the first round of the presidential election. Yet voter turnout was under 70 percent on Sunday, the lowest ever for a Paso. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll begin this round of spins with a right narrative from The Wall Street Journal. Argentina has entered into its worst economic crisis in two decades under the Alberto Fernandez presidency, as inflation has surpassed 100 percent and economic activity has stagnated. So it's no surprise that the outgoing leader gave up re-election ahead of a strong defeat. Only the pro-business opposition can offer Argentines hope for better days. We have a left narrative spin from America's Quarterly. It's certain that Fernandez's plans for re-election were abandoned due to his low approval ratings. But Sergio Massa is not cannon fodder in the face of an imminent electoral defeat. The Peronist presidential hopeful is a moderate, business-friendly politician that may yet garner support from the center and the left, especially as he will compete against far-right rivals. Taiwan's vice president vows to fight authoritarianism during a U.S. stop. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, The Economic Times, and CNBC. During an official transit stop in New York on Sunday, Taiwanese Vice President William Lai stated that Taipei would not be scared or cower in the face of the threat of authoritarianism. Lai, expected to run for the presidency in January 2024, said he was very willing to engage in talks with China to seek peace and stability. Lai's speech was also attended by the managing director of the American Institute in Taiwan, a U.S. government-run nonprofit that assists in maintaining unofficial diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Lai transited through the U.S. on Saturday to attend the inauguration of Paraguayan president-elect Santiago Peña on Tuesday. Paraguay is one of the only 12 nations still holding diplomatic ties with Chinese-claimed Taiwan. After Lai visits Paraguay, a second transit stop is scheduled on Wednesday in San Francisco. Although the U.S. and Taiwan have labeled the stops routine, 
China's Taiwan Affairs Office accused Lai of betraying Taiwan for his own selfish personal gain. Following Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen's meeting with the U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, on a stopover visit in April, China allegedly staged war games around Taiwan. Thanks for the facts, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from China Daily. The U.S.'s acceptance of Taiwan officials' transit stops goes against Washington's recognition of the one-China policy. Lai's pro-independent stance is just a distraction from the reality of his party's poor governance and a sad attempt to win votes. However, his potential election victory will only damage relations across the strait. Beijing should and will react strongly to continued attempts to undermine China's legitimate sovereignty over Taiwan. And the anti-China narrative comes from the Chicago Tribune. China continues to conduct aggressive military exercises in and around the Taiwan Strait, and subsequent regional tensions are only growing. While the U.S. must help stabilize relations between Taiwan and China again, Washington must protect economic and political interests and provide sensible competition against Beijing. As military conflict must be avoided, maintaining the international status quo is necessary for the U.S.'s future. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 57% chance that China will successfully control Taiwan within three years if they invade Taiwan before the year 2035. San Francisco and the New York City are probably my two favorite American cities but uh, you could do a lot better than visiting either of them in the summer. Uh, New York is hot and smelly in the summer, and San Francisco's really chilly in the summer. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it was it Hemingway or Mark Twain or someone said that, you know, the coldest winter of my life was the summer I spent in San Francisco. And he's not wrong. It is it is foggy and wet and cold in the summer in San Francisco. And it is hot and smelly in New York in the summer. So <laughs> I don't I don't think that was Hemingway Scott. I think that was Smash Mouth. Mm, right. Straight from Shrek's mouth to your ears. That's right. Poetry. Hong Kong protesters win a partial court victory. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Hong Kong Free Press, the Associated Press, Fox 8 of Cleveland, France 24, and the Business Standard. Seven prominent Hong Kong pro-democracy protesters won a partial victory in court Monday after a judge quashed part of their convictions related to their roles in the large pro-democracy protests of 2019. In 2021, media tycoon and founder of now-defunct Apple Daily, Jimmy Lai, unionist Lee Chek Yan, prominent leftist Lung Kwok Hung, lawyer Albert Ho, former lawmaker Sid Ho, and Civic Party and Democratic founders Margaret Ng and Martin Lee were arrested for organizing and taking part in an unauthorized assembly. Lai, Chuk Yang, Kwok Hung, and Ho all served between 8 and 18 months in jail, while Lee, an 85-year-old dubbed Hong Kong's father of democracy, Ng and Ho were given suspended sentences as part of the controversial convictions. On Monday, Judge Andrew McRae and the Court of Appeal unanimously struck down their convictions over organizing the 2019 protest that drew 1.7 million people to the streets in the largest challenge to Hong Kong's government since it returned to China in 1997. However, the court upheld their convictions for participating in the unlawful assembly, saying that the leader's place at the front of the protest march wasn't evidence of organization. 
The four protesters who served jail time saw their sentences reduced. Monday's decision comes a few weeks after the Hong Kong High Court ruled against a government request to ban the protest song Glory to Hong Kong after it had been played in place of the Chinese national anthem. The song was born out of the 2019 protests, which the government has sought to crack down on. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spin, starting with Narrative A from The Guardian. This ruling shows that changes are occurring in Hong Kong. Just in the past few weeks, courts have ruled against the Hong Kong government's attempts to unfairly charge protesters and ban songs like Glory to Hong Kong. The 2019 protests and the latest string of court decisions have only added inspiration to the fight for democracy. And Narrative B comes from the Dowdy Street Chambers. While some may laud this decision as a victory, the sad truth is that nothing has changed. Peaceful pro-democracy protesters still have to serve in jail for simply participating in an unlawful assembly. And McRae's ruling only further legitimizes the government's authority to dictate whether protests are legal or not and jail dissenters. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance Hong Kong will no longer be a special administrative region of China by September 2045. Now for news from Ecuador, where the slain candidate's VP choice will run for president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, BBC News, Reuters, CNN, and the Associated Press. The political party of Ecuador's assassinated presidential candidate, Fernando Villavicencio, announced on Saturday that his running mate will contest the August 20 election. The country's electoral authority has yet to approve the move. Moviento Construye chose the 36-year-old environmentalist Andrea Gonzalez as its presidential candidate so as to guarantee the legacy of Villavicencio. The party has yet to choose a vice presidential candidate. However, Villavicencio's widow, Veronica Soros, deemed Construye's decision arbitrary and unlawful as vice presidential candidates are not allowed to step down. Soros also alleged the state was directly responsible for the murder of her husband, as it allegedly failed to protect him while being in charge of his security. Known as an anti-corruption crusader, Villavicencio was assassinated hitman-style by three shots to the head last Wednesday after a campaign event at a school in the capital. Six Colombian men were detained in connection with the killing, while the notorious Los Chineros gang leader Adolfo Fito Macias was moved from a lighter security jail to a maximum security prison on Saturday. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Washington Post. Democracy is on the ballot in the upcoming Ecuadorian election as the country desperately needs to tackle organized crime. If the nation refrains from electing candidates representing authoritarian ideas, both from the right and the left, then Washington must ramp up security cooperation with Quito to show that lawful methods do work against violent drug gangs. And here's the establishment critical narrative from Craig Murray. One must be disturbingly naive, at best, to believe that further U.S. interference is what Ecuador needs after the killing of a presidential candidate who had long been a CIA asset. Though Villavicencio fabricated lies to boost the Russiagate invention and resolutely obstructed the impeachment of U.S.-backed Guillermo Lasso, his candidacy had turned him into a liability for the agency. Next up, Hunter Biden's lawyers say the prosecutors reneged on their deal. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The New York Post, The Guardian, The Associated Press, and ABC News. Attorneys for Hunter Biden have submitted a court filing accusing federal prosecutors of reneging on a plea deal that would have ended tax and gun charges against President Joe Biden's son. Although Biden's attorneys accept that the plea deal is moot related to the tax charges, they hold that a diversion agreement on the separate gun charge is still in effect since the contract was signed and usually doesn't require a judge's approval. Previously, U.S. District Judge Mary Ellen Narika rejected a plea deal that would have led to Biden pleading guilty to failing to pay taxes on $1.5 million in income and entering into the diversion agreement for committing a felony by owning a firearm while using drugs. Norieka rejected the deal which would have given Biden immunity for past crimes if he adhered to a drug testing regimen and other probationary guidelines over its legality and scope. This filing comes days after U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland assigned David Weiss, the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, as a special counsel to investigate Biden. Thank you, Scott, and we'll start this round of spins with a Republican narrative from the National Review. Any judge could see that the original plea agreement was a sweetheart deal, and the son of the sitting president was getting special treatment. Norieka was right to object, and prosecutors are correct in their intentions to take Biden to trial. It's unprecedented for someone as connected to the case as Weiss to be named special counsel, so it's still not clear whether Biden will still receive favoritism. And the Democratic narrative comes from NBC News. The prosecutors in this case are in disarray, and they should abide by the agreement they made. After all, they dictated all the terms, and Biden went along with them. There won't be any new charges coming down the pipe, so something resembling the original plea deal would be the best resolution to this case. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted before November 5th, 2024. Kim Jong-un demands a drastic boost in weapons production. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Examiner, Fox News, The Korea Herald, and Bloomberg. North Korea's state media reported Monday that Kim Jong-un has called for a drastic boost in the production of missiles, rocket launcher shells, and other weapons to meet the needs of frontline military units. On Friday and Saturday, the reclusive leader visited military plants for the second time in recent weeks to observe the manufacturing of tactical missiles, mobile launch platforms, and artillery shells. This request follows a meeting of the North Korean Central Military Commission last week, in which Kim reportedly urged his army to prepare offensively for a potential war amid high tensions in the Korean Peninsula. The push for more missiles and weapons also comes as U.S. officials claim that Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, negotiated the purchase of munitions during a visit to Pyongyang last month as the Ukraine war continues. Meanwhile, South Korea and the U.S. confirmed Monday that the annual Ulchi Freedom Shield joint military exercise will start on August 21st and run through August 31st focused on enhancing the combined defense capabilities against multiple threats. A day earlier, a South Korean National Security Council official told reporters that U.S. President Biden will host Japan's Fumio Kishida and South Korea's Yoon Suk-yul at Camp David on Friday to discuss cooperation against threats from Pyongyang. Thanks, Melissa. We have an establishment-critical narrative from Antiwar.com. 
When Washington was truly committed to de-escalating tensions with North Korea, Pyongyang responded positively, halting missile tests and demolishing several test sites. This changed when the U.S. began to increase its military presence in the Asia-Pacific, posing an existential threat to the DPRK. Carrying out provocative drills will only escalate tensions. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from DW. Seoul and Washington have demonstrated goodwill toward Pyongyang in the hopes of creating an environment conducive to disarmament talks for four years. However, as North Korea has failed to make good on its promises, resuming its missile tests and further developing its nuclear program, a posture shift is necessary for the South and its allies to prepare for an attack from the North. And we have another statistics-based nerd narrative brought to us by Metaculus. This time they say there's a 15% chance there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by the year 2050. Mexico to pay victims' families in a migrant detention center fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by News Nation, CBS News, and the Associated Press. The Mexican government said Sunday that it will pay 140 million pesos, or 8.2 million American dollars, to the families of the 40 men from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Colombia, and Venezuela who died at a migrant detention center in Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Texas. According to Mexican authorities, the fire started after a migrant who was being held along with 67 other men set fire to the mattress in his cell to protest his potential deportation. Though detention center workers released 15 female migrants, they didn't try to free the men, with video footage showing guards apparently running away from the fire without making any attempt to unlock the doors of cells where migrants were held. Among the dead were 19 Guatemalans, 7 Salvadorans, 7 Venezuelans, 6 Hondurans, and 1 Colombian, 39 of whom died directly in the fire, mostly from asphyxiation, and one passing away at the hospital. Another 27 sustained injuries. The head of the National Immigration Institute was also charged with an alleged pattern of irresponsibility. A fire at another detention facility in 2020 killed one and injured 14. Thank you, Scott, for those sobering facts. And we'll begin this round of sp- and we'll begin this round of spins with the narrative A from Mexico News Daily. Though some authorities deserve the blame and to be punished for this unnecessary tragedy, this is a show of good faith and accountability from the Mexican government. Prosecutors are going after several low- to high-level agents involved, orchestrating new accountability and safety measures, and compensating the victims' families. And Narrative B comes from Reason. Though the blame game surrounding this fire has put irregular migration and the behavior of both migrants and Mexican officials in the spotlight, it still misses an important factor contributing to this tragedy. While not causing these deaths alone, American border policies have aggravated long-standing problems by restraining legal entry and failing to discourage migrants from attempting to enter the U.S. The Miss Universe organization cuts Indonesia ties. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Sky News, The Guardian, USA Today, BBC News, and The Times of India. The Miss Universe organization has cut ties with its franchise in Indonesia after several contestants accused local organizers of sexual abuse during the beauty pageant's crowning ceremony in Jakarta. The organization said it will also terminate its association with Indonesia beauty company PT Capella Swastika Karya 
saying that the franchise had not lived up to our brand standards and ethics. At least six contestants in the Miss Universe Indonesia pageant have recently filed police complaints, alleging they were forced to take off their clothes for a body check for scars and cellulite two days before the competition last month. Five of the complainants claim they were photographed topless in the presence of at least two dozen people, including men. Though the investigation into the allegations is underway, the New York-based organization is reportedly in the process of canceling the upcoming Miss Universe Malaysia, also arranged by P.T. Capella Swastika Karya. Meanwhile, Capella has denied her involvement in the alleged sexual abuse during the beauty contest held between July 29th and August 3rd, claiming she is against any violence or sexual harassment. Narrative A comes from Pageant Circle. This is an unfair move against P.T. Capella Swastika Karya, shown by the way Miss Universe railroaded them by prolonging their renewal process and then issuing a last-minute email regarding their termination. As a company that celebrates the power of feminism and would never commit sexual abuse against women, the loss of its credibility and license is tragic. And here's Narrative B from Bloomberg. This shameful incident has not only tarnished the image of Indonesia, a tolerant, secular, and pluralist society that respects freedom of expression, but also traumatized women who dared to win a competition. The Miss Universe organization must evaluate its worldwide franchise agreements and policies to prevent sexual abuse from occurring in the future. Our final story, scientists turn fly carcasses into biodegradable plastic. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Earth.com, Fizz.org, and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Findings presented at a meeting of the American Chemical Society show that the carcasses of black soldier flies could be harvested to produce biodegradable plastic in an attempt to produce bioplastics from organic waste products to stem plastic pollution. Head researcher Dr. Karen Woolley of Texas A&M University collaborated with Dr. Jeffrey Tomberlin, a leader in black soldier fly farming. While the nutrient-rich larvae are invaluable for animal feed, the researchers attempted to find a use for the adult flies, which are typically discarded. The researchers found that the flies are rich in a sugar-based polymer called chitin, which helps strengthen the shells and exoskeletons of insects. While chitin is already harvested from some crustaceans, the black soldier fly chitin seemed to be more purified. A graduate student in Dr. Woolley's lab was able to convert the chitin into a polymer known as chitosan, which makes the material useful for the creation of bioplastics, including water-absorbing hydrogels. The researchers were able to produce a chitin hydrogel bioplastic that could absorb 47 times its weight in water in just one minute. Hydrogels could be placed in cropland to absorb water that could later be released during periods of drought with the added benefit of biodegrading and adding nutrients to the soil. The team is now working towards converting chitin into small sugar molecules that can be made into bioplastics. Dr. Woolley hopes to create proof of an end-to-end bioplastic program where insects could consume waste plastics before they are in turn harvested. Thank you, Scott, for those exciting facts. We'll begin this round of narrative spins with Narrative A from The Atlantic. While this is no doubt a promising development, there is currently a lack of infrastructure to properly handle biodegradable plastics. 
Most bioplastics wind up in a dump, and many can only degrade in a controlled composting setting, meaning these efforts could be all for naught if the right conditions aren't in place. For now, we should focus less on single-use plastics and more on changing our single-use mindset. And there to be from Forbes. This discovery is another leap forward in our fight against plastic pollution on many fronts. The plastics industry now has the potential to use an agricultural waste product to create a circular self-sustaining supply chain for a product that is safe for the earth and bypasses the petrochemical industry. New advances are being made at record speed as we inch closer towards finding a truly clean plastic. Scott, I was um, I stumbled upon another company that's trying to make these single-use plastics out of kelp um, that they're harvesting mm. because it is it grows so fast. I think it takes thirty days for it to grow, um, and then it can be turned into film and would avoid that the problem they're talking about with the corn. Uh, you know, like the Atlantic was talking about other um, you know, conditions need to be right for it to, to biodegrade. It has to be controlled composting. But with kelp, it would not. It, yeah, it we'd be like, like another begging to throw our plastic in the ocean at that point. Right. It would just right. be we're doing that anyway. So let's 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 do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think solved. we should only be allowed to look into stuff like this where there's a rogue resource that is unused. You know, think of all in the past, all the weird, you know, I'm sure there was a time when someone tripped over a gold nugget and it was like, ah, this thing, let's just throw right. this away. This is yeah. annoying rock. You know, I, I feel like things are valuable if we say they're valuable. So let's say some stuff that we have too much of is valuable and then figure it out. Uh, yeah, I believe that in sounds us. good. Yeah. Yeah. Change our, change our mindset then. Yeah. But that being said, do I, you really want to like eat your apple juice out of a fly pouch? Like, it does sound a little weird. It does sound weird, but think of the plastics that you drink out of. That's, yeah, I guess that. I mean, also, like, the water we drink is somebody's pee. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Pee is probably the least concerning thing in the water we drink. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.